and so many people think they're better by just being different and that is a fool's game you really need to have something that's demonstrably better in some form and to do that of course requires invention and innovation it's not easy to do but then you've got something really advantageous and it's even better if you can hear it if you can measure it and if you can see it so if you tie a benefit around something that's visible something that's Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got John Carter. John, thanks for making time. Thank you. So successful entrepreneur, inventor, advisor, you've, you've done a lot in life. What are you up to these days? Oh, that's a, it's a good question. <laughs> I sometimes ask myself. Oh, I spend uh, probably uh, 80% of my time helping technology companies with their product programs, typically working on portfolio management and accelerating innovation in their organizations. A little background, uh, we helped Apple create its new product process and We've worked with a range of companies, A to Z, mostly on how helping them scale and innovate. And and for, for additional background, can you kind of give people just a quick once over, and we'll dive into some of these more in depth, but helping co-invent the Bose noise-canceling headphones and work in private equity and some of these other things you've done in your career? Sure. I'll give what I call my Twitter-length biography. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, been trained as an engineer, went to grad school at MIT, and was fortunate enough to have Dr. Bose of the audio company fame as my professor. I had an opportunity to go to a couple schools here on the West Coast or back East, and I chose the, the school back East because I was looking at a program that integrated engineering and audio technology. And I had an amazing experience when I went to MIT. I did not have a scholarship or a teaching position or any kind of research assistant. But I decided just to sign up and figure out I'd be able to pay tuition somehow. So I drove across the country in my Camaro filled with books and, and clothes and arrived on the doorstep of MIT registered. And I attended my first class in Dr. Bose's acoustics course. And he said to the class that someone had dropped out to be the teaching assistant. And is there anyone in the class that would like to do that? And I raised my hand. Even though I hadn't taken the subject as an undergrad, I can tell you it was the most humbling experience I've ever had because those, those kids at MIT are pretty smart. And you learn pretty quickly to say you don't know if you don't know. <laughs> but that was a really amazing bit of luck, and luck plays a lot of roles in our success, as certainly I describe, and, and you've heard, heard from others as well. One of the things Dr. Bose did uh, when I raised my hand is he met with me after class, and he asked me one question, and I spent 20 minutes with him, and he said, okay, you've, you've got the job. It just so happened that I had, I had really majored in the area that he asked the question about. So it was almost luck. It had nothing to do with acoustics. It had to do with the description of complex systems. But I was able to, in, in my training and with luck, be able to answer the one question that he had asked me. 
I had the fortune then of uh, being his teaching assistant, doing research uh, with him at Bose and joined the company. And my first two projects were in the area of uh, acoustic research. One was in the case of noise canceling headphones, excuse me, in the other case or opportunity was in a loudspeaker that would sense its environment. Here's another point of, of luck or of fate, which is that we looked at a couple of these uh, projects and it turned out in the headphones, I had made some very quick progress, much more rapidly than I had with the loudspeaker. Uh, we had one discussion and Dr. Bose and I decided to only work on one thing and we picked the headphones. And I have no idea to this day what would have happened with the other uh, research study Probably not much, but I think we picked the right right problem to work on. One of the things that was really curious when we worked on that innovation, and we worked a couple years before we, we actually showed it to uh, potential users, is that we designed this to improve the fidelity of earphone or a headset. In other words, uh, how well it could produce bass notes as well as treble and how uniform it would sound and lifelike. But what we found in demonstrating this to people, especially in the military and especially in the Air Force and the Army, was they were interested in noise canceling. So they actually told us that noise canceling was the most important feature of this phone. And it was for communication. They wanted to be able to communicate well in noisy environments. And so I think one common misperception is that inventors know what the benefits are of their invention. They don't. They, they might have a hunch, but only when that invention really comes in contact with a consumer or user do you really know what the benefits are. And often you're aware of the benefits, but they're like second or third place or fifth place or barely on the first page of benefits. But customers, better than yourself, better than the person that invented it, can often tell uh, the benefits more clearly uh, than the inventor uh, could. So anyway, we, we started uh, selling that headphone at first with contracts to the Air Force Base, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and the U.S. Army tracked vehicle testing ground in Aberdeen, Maryland. And from these early contracts, not only did we fund the R&D that went into this, but we learned a great deal about the headphones and its performance. Really, its first public performance or, or availability was in the private air show at Oshkosh, the yearly uh, uh, show where private pilots can look at the newest planes and newest technology. By that time, we thought we had a winner. And it took many, many years of market development for the headphones to really take off. But now it's really part of the competitive landscape. And if you don't have a noise canceling feature, you're really not competitive. And so it's, I, I think it's really important also to stick with what you believe to be uh, true. And one of the things that Dr. Bose was truly amazing at, and this, this, I've never met someone like this. I'm sure Steve Jobs and other legendary folks might be in this who are very creative, is that Dr. Bose would not only invent the product or the concept, he'd invent the distribution channel to get it to market. So if you look at the, one of the other things that I worked on was the Bose Wave Radio. 
And he knew that no one would pay $300 for essentially a, a clock radio. Now, it's a whole lot more than that, but that's how it could be labeled if it was uh, put on a shelf at a big box retailer, never shown to the public. So he spent years of looking and searching for the right kind of distribution model. And first he tried, believe it or not, door to door. Then he tried direct mail. Then he tried spokesman, having someone do it, to sell it directly, but have a spokesman. And this, uh, it turned out that this using a spokesman and direct fulfillment was beginning to really work. And that's one other thing that I realized with Bose and many of their successes. If you really want credibility, get third-party credibility. You have no weight or ability to really extol the virtues of your product unless you really have someone else tell you about it. Well, this was the real catalyst that allowed us to really enter the market and start growing it, both for the headphones and for this wave radio. And one of the things that Dr. Bose also did is he really, really looked at the long game. If you may recall, Bose was one of the first direct-to-consumer merchants that was out there. And they had really a, a laboratory, believe it or not, in Hawaii. And they created a retail test environment. So we only had one direct-to-consumer store in the United States for, I bet, 10 years and was in Hawaii. And it's where Dr. Bose perfected the secret of how do you sell products direct-to-consumer. And so by actually inventing not only the product, but also the channel, because normal retail channels would not work because the products would not be demonstrated, we found a solution into going direct. And so, you know, this really sums up just many of my learnings working with Dr. Bose. And he also had a couple of secrets I really would like to share, and I think they're really important to share. And that is that we had several things that I would call product visions that were incredibly helpful to engineers because you'd have an engineer just say, well, let's do this and let's slap the name on it. and That should be good. Dr. Bose would never allow that or the other senior managers. In order, he had this expression, which is in order to be better, you have to be different, but not the other way around. And so many people think they're better by just being different. And that is a fool's game. You really need to have something that's demonstrably better in some form. And to do that, of course, requires invention and innovation. It's not easy to do. But then you've got something really advantageous. And it's even better if you can hear it, if you can measure it, and if you can see it. So if you tie a benefit around something that's visible, something that is uh, objective and measurable, and then something that you can actually perceive as a benefit, you've got a real winning product. The other thing he used to say, and this, this I think is humorous now, but certainly was useful at the time, which is basically great sound out of small packages. And this really launched the, in many ways, the smart speakers and the, the revolution that we've had in providing less conspicuous sound, even in automobiles. 
where you don't have huge speakers in them that are visible or the homes where you have two large loudspeakers in the living room. That's all part of the past. And so these having these very simple product vision statements that would help the engineers be tremendously more efficient than what they do, searching for real innovation and real benefits that matter to people. And he was he was a terrific mentor. But there's another thing I'd like to misspell, and that is that this is easy. As, as a matter of fact, it wasn't easy. For example, Dr. Bose, Mar Bose taught this acoustics class at MIT, taught it for 20 years. And when I joined as a teaching assistant, it was his 21st year, year of teaching this course. He only taught one course at this time, which was that one in acoustics. And what's amazing, Jess, is that he would, every day before a class, or a class on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 11, he would spend the time between about 9 o'clock and 11 reviewing his notes. And he'd do that every Tuesday and every Thursday. And this is for someone who's, who's a master at this, has taught it for 20 years. But the fact is, every time before he had a class, he prepared for it, even though it was the 21st time that he had given it. And he was the most amazing person as far as teaching and won some awards for this. When someone would ask him a question, uh, he would listen to the question. Listen, he was a great listener. And that's another misperception is that inventors aren't listeners. That's not true. He was a great listener. And so when a student would add, ask him a question, he would think and he'd translate what the inarticulate words that that student may have asked into the real question. He thought about the real answer, deeply thought about the real answer, and then translated that back into a language. And I'm not talking about from English to French or Mandarin, but I'm just talking about in, in a, an expression that this student could grasp. So it was this amazing ability quickly to listen, understand, decode, translate, and deliver a message that made him a truly amazing teacher and amazing performer in terms of business. You know, I have so many questions from that, but I think what I'd like to start with is, you know, there can be kind of a perception out there that if you if you create a good enough product, it shouldn't need to be marketed very hard or sold very hard. And this this idea that sometimes we can feel like, well, because there's been so many slimy salespeople or there's been so much misleading marketing out there, that sometimes professionals can can want to maybe minimize that aspect of their business, their career, their what's required from leadership, you know? And yet you hear the stories of, you know, Steve Jobs and how deeply he thought about the marketing of the product. And so hearing this from Dr. Bose is actually super interesting to me as well. You know, you've done so many things, raised $100 million for doing electronics roll-ups, and, and now you're advising even folks like Apple. Can you talk to this idea of not just working hard on the product, but working hard on the distribution? Can you go maybe a little deeper on that? Sure. And and I absolutely understand and agree with what, what you said about many marketeers. But I think a couple points are, are relevant. The first, actually, I mentioned before, which is third-party credibility. And so if you look at this, it's a really, really great way to build your brand. And obviously, and now it's it's apparent everywhere, both good and bad, 
is the socialization of feedback through comments and ratings of various products on the internet. So basically, as you, you look at a product, you look at its ratings. Well, that's third-party credibility. But how do you get third-party credibility? Well, in general, if you're doing something in which you can attract good pricing for, there's innovation in it. And so I think to be successful, you really need to have some kind of investment. And the way I look at marketing and sales is you need to spend, uh, there are three components. There's marketing, sales, and product. And if you've got one great element there, you're in okay straights. If you've got two, you've got it nailed. And so if you look at the product, does the product demonstrable? Does it solve a real problem or one that can't even be imagined yet, but people are delighted to see? That's the first thing. It's the easiest to sell. The second is you kind of look at marketing and sales in a pie, pie diagram. You either do a lot of marketing or you do a lot of sales. Most companies do a balance of, of either one. But it's important to use third-party credibility in the marketing. And marketing I call one-to-many. Marketing is future-oriented and marketing is persistent. Whereas sales tends to be one-to-one, the decision is incremental and typically rapid. And so you need to balance these kinds of elements in your channel strategy as well. But I would say, Jess, in order to make the, the argument in the best case, you need a product that has demonstrable benefits. Otherwise, you just spend all that investment in, in simply sales and it is not sustainable. I might also uh, say that in order to achieve market share, in general, you need to have channel reach. And if you're using third-party credibility, it may take you time to get that channel reach. So in general, marketing strategies take more time and are more strategic. But I believe a, a great product has all three elements working well, the product, the sales, the marketing, and I would say in some instances, the fourth element would be customer success or product uh, service and support. You know, I'm interested, you know, I know you were a principal at a $4 billion investment firm and, and we, we talked just a minute before the show about the roll-up that you did. Can you talk about any aspect of what you've just told us as far as principles and the, how that factored into your decisions as you did a roll-up of a number of electronics brands? Yes, that's a really great question. And most most rollups consider or consist of buying a what's called a platform company, which is the biggest company, and then buying other companies that are smaller and putting them under the larger company and achieve cost savings because you can reduce redundancies. And a rollups often have a bad name or bad rap because that's what a lot of them do. This roll-up was predicated on something totally different. Although we did have savings in the bottom line to improve profit margin, we also had many ideas about the related to sales, marketing, and product that were part of the strategy. We had five elements in our strategy. And by the way, it, it took us six weeks to close on this fund. We, we showed it to six firms. We got two offers in six weeks. And the, our funding was raised uh, basically on 12 PowerPoint slides. Wow. And that was, so, a hun that was $100 million you raised for that? Nearly. Nearly. And, and, and what it, was the strategy? What were the type of firms you were going after? 
Well, so uh, this is one really important thing, and why it only took 12 uh, slides is that your, your credibility is really important. What is your pedigree? Have you done this before? Have you demonstrated expertise? In our case, I had teamed up with Tom Jacoby, and Tom was the former president of Harman. So he had great executive presence, knew how public companies operated, and also was a marketing genius. I had more operations and technology, and I had connections to the financial community that allowed that. But anyway, back to the things that were important. The first was pedigree, that we had pedigree. The second is that we wanted to have international distribution. The firms that we are looking at, all of them were basically only domestic US firms or only domestic Danish firms or domestic Chinese firms. We believe that achieving market growth can be done through international distribution expansion. And so one of our, our platforms was to expand the distribution dramatically to make it global for all the brands that we had. Second, or the third factor after pedigree and distribution was we looked at what is the thin, what is the, the essentially the red line, the technology, the demonstrable benefit that we can infuse these products with. And so we helped achieve a, a differentiated product platform for these brands. And so they really could offer something more than just look and, and styling, but they had performance. The next thing was that these organizations did not have their global sourcing down. And we helped these domestic companies have world-class international sourcing strategies. And finally, we used the benefits of leverage and profit to help us grow and drive uh, future acquisitions. And we had a roadmap defined of those acquisitions that we would like to target over time. So we took this, this and finally, I, I, I do need to mention, we did have some cost synergies. But if you take these five elements and put them together, you really have a robust uh, story that appeals to investors. And I can tell you, there are literally hundreds of private cap, uh, equity firms out there who are willing to invest and want to, and they'll do it in a good person with a good idea. And Tom and I, when we started this, we had no offices, no structure. We had an idea and a passion and some capability. And private equity managers love to hear stories and ideas from people like that. I love it. And so what would we recognize those any of those brands or what what type of companies were you buying? Oh, sure, sure. They were all in the audio space. Klipsch was probably the most famous. It's a U.S. brand. We also bought API, which had energy and Mirage, Mirage speakers. We bought a fairly sizable Danish company called Yamo, which is very popular in, in Europe at the time, and we helped expand that uh, here. And then we also purchased a, a Chinese company in, in mainland China as well, which you wouldn't, wouldn't have heard of. But we had this platform, Klipsch was a platform, and then we had these uh, several sub-brands that we integrated into the Klipsch group. And so we renamed it the Klipsch group and executed on our strategy that way. And, and how long was that from, from the point you went out to those original, you know, hopeful funding sources, get the funding, execute the plan, and eventually exit? What, what was that life cycle? 
in years? I'm glad you glad you asked because it, it, everything takes longer than you plan. So Tom and I went to the Consumer Electronics Show, CES, which is in Vegas every year in January. We came back and really had an idea that we thought would be very popular after we met with CEOs at, the, at, C, at CES. And so that's when we generated this 12-page power, 12 PowerPoint deck. In six weeks, we had a commitment for the roll-up. Now, the clock started, and the, we uh, had offers from Vantage Point and Carlisle. We looked at those two offers. By the way, they were almost identical. Uh, they didn't talk, but it looked like they did. It's a very efficient market, as Jess, I'm sure you're aware. Anyway, the, the notion was that we were given a small amount of money to start and formalize our strategy, including bringing back letters of intent so that we could, in fact, move forward on the transaction. We are given one year and a small fixed amount of money to get that done. It took us 11 months and we nearly ran out of money. We made a big mistake of pursuing the wrong target early. And boy, lawyers and accountants are expensive. And so you really want to do diligence when you're really sure. So we made a mistake and burned up our some of our seed capital late, but we made it. And so it took us 11 months to actually get the target. And then it took three years to execute it and to receive remuneration from it. So six weeks, then 11 months, and then three years. And the intention wasn't a quick flip, but we really wanted to build this firm and and really grow it into something substantial. And at its peak, it, it generated twice the revenue and four times the profit. So we really achieved a, a good result for ourselves and, and the investors. That's incredible. So, and tell me again, the, the metrics on the sale, did you, those metrics you just said, was that the operating upside or what was the sale upside or is that not public? Yeah, it's not public, but I'll okay. give you some benchmarks for for what we achieved. And I can tell you that we didn't achieve the full potential because we sold it during the Great Recession. So oh, wow. unfortunately, due to liquidity requirements, we really didn't exit at the optimum place. But nevertheless, we, we got a good return for everybody because we did execute on the fundamentals. Transactions in those industries are typically priced, obviously, by comps, comparable transactions, but secondarily, looking at EBITDA, which is earnings before interest taxes and depreciation, a commonly used metric, as well as revenue. And one of the guidances that we've been given, and in fact, we found to be true, is don't count on multiple expansion when you exit. And that is that often the, the uh, multiples, multiples on revenue and EBITDA are dependent on the type of industry and the growth rate. And there is a small improvement in the multiples if you grow tremendously in size because small companies are inherently worth less than their metrics than a large company for a number of good reasons. Anyway, to answer your question, the exits on EBITDA in consumer electronics range, range from five to 10 times. And the um, metrics on sales are two times. And that was approximately true going in and going out. But we made uh, did, did very well in increasing both the top line and, and bottom line. Oh, that's exciting. 
Well, I know we're about done with part one of the interview and, and everybody we really want you to tune into part two. We want to ask about some of the other things you're doing these days and what you've done over at Apple and your book on your website, some of these things. But maybe, you know, a question that I've really enjoyed asking people lately is if you could go back and give a younger version of yourself some advice, what, what advice would you give a younger version of yourself? God, that's a really great question and hard to, to really answer in an objective way. But it's really funny. If you were to look forward, I would have never predicted what I'd be doing now, being on the board of a public company and and running a management consulting firm. However, if you look back, it all makes tremendous sense. And so it's hard to really live a life going forward. It makes sense looking back, like Benjamin Britten say. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it, I think the one advice that I'd recommend that I followed, but I'd recommend it, is be a very good generalist first. And if you understand, at least in engineering, if you understand some things well and intrinsically, you can move those to adjacent fields. I guess that and having a mentor is really just invaluable. Well, solid advice. I love it. Well, everybody, please tune in to part two and, uh, and thanks for listening.